History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is The History of Persia, episode 58, Persia's First Family. I also want to remind you that I am guest hosting the Oldest Stories podcast, starting September 8th. The Oldest Stories is running through the myths and history of the Near East prior to Cyrus's conquests, and is just now circling around the infamous Bronze Age Collapse. But the regular host is busy doing one of those real jobs right now. Conveniently for me, he hasn't talked too much about the Elamite civilization of Bronze Age Iran, and I have been trying to find a good way to talk about the Elamites for a while now. Spoilers, the Medes and Persians were far from the first invaders to conquer Mesopotamia from a base in Anshan. Today, we're continuing with the reign of Xerxes. So far, we've had rebellions, foreign wars, political shakeups, administrative reforms, and construction projects. Today, it's time to look at his home life. The royal family episode has become a bit of a tradition on this podcast, which is funny, considering the first one was mostly just a way to set up Cambyses' incest and rivalry with Bardia. But it really is a great way to pave the way for the next King of Kings. The problem is, we are at the widest, 
most complicated point in the royal family tree. Strictly speaking, it will get bigger, it'll also be culled a couple of times, but in the absence of Herodotus, we just don't get as many of their names and stories in the future. The royal family has also just been in the main narrative more. We've seen several internecine conflicts play out in the political narrative, with Xerxes' disputed succession, Mecistes' rebellion, and Cestaspes' execution. As the royal family grows, and siblings produce cousins, produce second cousins, and so on, most of the high officials are technically part of the family. Darius's polygamy and practice of forming alliances by marrying off his children certainly helped this situation develop as well. The first thing to do, in my opinion, is look at Xerxes' own lineage and realize that we are still just one degree of removal away from Cyrus the Great. A lot has happened since Cyrus's time, but Xerxes is only his grandson. It's only been about 60 years since the Imperial founder was killed in battle, but it's also high time that we sever that last direct tie we know of to Cyrus. Xerxes' mother, Atossa. The daughter of Cyrus, sister of Cambyses, wife of Cambyses, sister of Bardia, maybe wife of Bardia, wife of Darius, mother of Xerxes, and several other princes and princesses, Atossa was ultimately Cyrus's most successful child. Nobody else was so highly placed for so long. The Queen Mother is always an odd figure in Achaemenid history. Herodotus credits Atossa with both Darius's desire to conquer Greece and securing Xerxes' role as the designated successor. All the evidence of the Persepolis archive and Xerxes' own inscriptions make it seem like her power was limited when Darius was alive, and grew significantly after her son became king. Most of the Greek anecdotes about her life are set in Darius's court. The most famous story of her relationship with Xerxes is in a fictional play, Aeschylus's The Persians, first performed in Athens in 472, where she is only ever called the Queen. She narrates the beginning of the play, and then summons Darius's ghost to chastise Xerxes for his failures in Greece. Despite the limited scope of any specific story about her, and the anachronistic nature of stories about her political influence, that is how Atossa's reputation preceded her. On the farthest western frontier of her father's empire, Atossa was known for how influential she was in the Persian court during her son's reign. The only story that really reflects this was her role in convincing Xerxes to send Satospes around Africa as punishment for being a rapist, rather than simply executing him. In reality, that is probably very exemplary of her kind of political power. As Queen Mother, Atossa had a natural sort of wisdom and parental sway in Xerxes' mind, and could make requests of him when others could not. This is just something you see with the parents of 
kind of everybody, for all time. Once Xerxes took power, her estates and personal economic influence probably increased significantly as well, but possibly just not in Parsa, as she still does not appear in the Persepolis records. Sometimes having access to that treasure trove of records from the Persian capital gives historians a set of blinders where we start to ignore the possibility of important, powerful people in places we don't have records for. We know that Xerxes and Atossa had ties to Parthia, for instance, and we know that media must have been important even if we don't have records from Ecbatana yet. Not appearing at Persepolis does not necessarily write her off as a political figure. Aside from Atossa herself, most of her generation is lost to history as the next generation came to power. Presumably, they continued to rule their estates and the men held political offices until they died or abdicated authority to their children. Between Darius's multitude of siblings and wives, Xerxes did have a plethora of cousins, nieces, nephews, and half-siblings, not to mention a sizable brood of full-blooded siblings from Atossa as well. Thanks to the invasion of Greece and Herodotus's detailed catalogue of the Persian commanders, we actually know many of these people's names. That said, I have to stress that this is not a complete catalogue of the royal family, just the men who were involved in the Greek campaign. Even then, that list is extensive and brought together one of the more impressive family reunions in history, but it leaves out various princes who remained behind to govern their satrapies and maintain the empire, and doubtlessly, a comparable army of dukeshish, the royal women, who had no role on the front lines in the Achaemenid hierarchy. Likewise, there are almost certainly a number of names from the Persepolis archive that correspond to members of the royal family, but without Greek counterparts to their names or references to other family members in surviving records, we just don't know which people were royal and which people weren't. Some historians just assume that the satraps led their subjects in Herodotus's catalogue. Others interpret those commanders as subordinates to the satraps who would have remained behind. In all likelihood, it was probably some combination of those two, dependent on the personality and political position of the satrap and satrapy in question. You'll see what I mean as we go here. Despite whatever relationship she'd officially had with her brothers, all of Atossa's known children came from her union with Darius. It's entirely plausible that she had more children than we know of, including other children of Darius only identified by their relationship to their father. We know of three full royal siblings in Xerxes' family, though. His brother, Achaemenes, was appointed satrap of Egypt after Xerxes' defeat of that rebellion in 486, and he led the Egyptian navy in the invasion of Greece. He will go on to outlive his brother and serve his nephew in the same role for years to come. 
Atossa also had a daughter called Mandane by Herodotus and Sandake by Plutarch. Plutarch likely got his name from Theseus, whose names are not always reliable. Mandane married a man called Artoctes and had three sons, all of whom were killed at Salome. Evidently, she carried that trauma with her for years and actually tried to use her own influence at court to punish Greek commanders in years to come. They also had a brother, Histaspes, named for their paternal grandfather. Histaspes commanded the Bactrians and a contingent of Saka during the invasion of Greece. He is only briefly mentioned by Herodotus, but his son, Pisuthnes, was probably born in Xerxes' reign and will become important much later as the satrap of Lydia. I suspect this guy, in combination with the later confusion between Darius's father and the Avestan king of the same name, led to the common misconception that Darius's father was satrap of Bactria. That perception is probably aided by the fact that another Histospes, one of Xerxes' sons, was also satrap of Bactria, but we'll get to that later. This Histospes, of course, could not have been the satrap, at least not during the invasion of 480, because that position was still held by Mesistes, at least if we accept that he was an actual person alive in 480. According to Herodotus, one of Xerxes' full brothers was Mesistes, though as I've mentioned over and over, there's also the theory that he was one of Darius's sons from his first marriage. And of course, we've talked all about Mesistes' story ad nauseum, so this is a good time to go to Xerxes' half-siblings. And here, I need to offer a correction and a clarification before leaving these infernal grandsons of Gabrius in the past forever. Except one or two more times. According to Herodotus, Darius had two sons before Xerxes, both with the unnamed daughter of Gabrius. He calls one of these Artobazanes. This is the brother that opposed Xerxes at the start of his reign and may or may not have been conflated with Mesistes. Xerxes' second elder brother was called Ariobignes. He was actually a very important local ruler who led the Ionian and Carian Greek fleets during the invasion and was killed at Salome, which I mention in episode 51. Plutarch, who lived centuries later but despised Herodotus, pulled information from other sources, and condensed both of Xerxes' elder brothers into a single figure he called Ariomenes. To make matters worse, Herodotus mentions Arsomenes, another son of Darius who led the Utians and Mucans from Drangiana during the war with Greece. However, the 18th century composer, George Friedrich Handel, wrote an opera about Xerxes in 1738, and he picked up the name Arsomenes and used it as the name for Xerxes' elder brother, the same way that Plutarch used Ariomenes. At some point, 
This name worked its way into a couple of early 20th century books, and from there into my own work. So long story short, Xerxes had two elder brothers, Ariobazanes and Ariobignes. One was Satrap of Bactria in 486, the other led the Anatolian Greeks in 480. Later writers made a habit of conflating the two under a single name, and an entirely fictional opera by Handel conflated them with a third half-brother called Arsomenes with no maternal connection to anybody else. Unfortunately, I think I have used all four names plus Masistes, so I apologize for the confusion. The real Arsomenes is actually somewhat unique among Darius's children, in that we don't know his mother. This is the usual case for most of Achaemenid history, but Herodotus was actually able to identify the mothers of most of the princes who came to Greece in 480. The only other children of Darius who are referenced without their mothers are his daughters, who married the generals sent to stop the original Ionian revolt, and we don't even find out what their names were. Working through Xerxes' half-brothers necessarily retreads some of the same names as episodes 39 to 41, but I think it can be interesting to see how things shook out for some of the people we last checked in with at the end of Darius's reign. Atossa's sister, Artistone, was known as Darius's favorite wife and had three children. Her daughter, Artazostra, was married to Mardonius, and her sons went on to, what else, become local rulers and lead troops in Greece. One of her sons we've already met when discussing events in Darius's reign. While his father was alive, Arsimes helped manage his mother's estates in Parsa, but Xerxes apparently appointed him to a position at the far-flung ends of the empire. In Greece, he commanded the Bedouin Arabs and Nubians that fell under Persian control. It wouldn't be at all surprising if Xerxes deliberately put Arsimes in an unfavorable appointment given Artistine's own reputation at court. Artistine's other son was Gobrius, awkwardly named for Darius's original father-in-law and co-conspirator. He commanded a collection of tribes from the mountains of eastern Anatolia and northern Syria. Once again, not a favorable position, but possibly a hint at a rivalry or fear of potential rivalry between Cyrus the Great's grandsons, resulting from their mother's positions under Darius. I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that Xerxes' full brothers were in command of major provinces like Egypt and Bactria, compared to the half-subjugated fringes of imperial control for Artistine's sons. Atossa and Artistine's cousin Parmis was also Darius's wife. As Bardia's daughter, she and her son are both technically in Xerxes' generation, depending on how you look at the family tree. It's literally impossible to keep things linear here, but I try where I can. Her son was Ariomardus, 
who was another half-brother placed in command of troops on the frontiers of Achaemenid control. In this case, he led several tribal groups from the Western Caucasus region, including modern Georgia. Despite his remote location, it's actually possible that Ariomardus was one of the satraps most successful in exporting Persian culture. As Zoroastrianism spread prolifically in that region, right around Xerxes' time. Finally, the last two half-brothers that we know of were Hyperanthes and Abracomes, both of whom died at the Battle of Thermopylae. Given their rank and the circumstances, they were probably among the immortals charging the Greek defenses. Their mother, Fradaguna, was actually Darius' own niece through one of his brothers. Her fate is generally unknown. Of the royal family members mentioned by Herodotus in Xerxes' entourage, the oldest is the last known surviving brother of Darius, Artabanus. If you remember all the way back in episode 47, Preparing the Way, Artabanus was used as Herodotus's foil to Mardonius, constantly cautioning against the invasion of Greece, and ultimately, he was ordered to return to Parsa by Xerxes. It's one of those stories that feels too much like a literary trope for historians to accept it at face value, but as the oldest male left in the royal family, it's entirely plausible that Artabanus remained behind as regent, or part of a regency council, while Xerxes was abroad. Artabanus had two sons, both of whom did continue on to Greece and led troops there. One was Tritantychmes, who was described by Herodotus as of similar rank and position to Mardonius, and the other was Artufios, who led the Gandaran troops in the army. Most of Xerxes' first cousins, or rather first cousins who weren't half-siblings, were people who we have already encountered in detail. This includes the likes of Artaphernes the Younger, satrap of Lydia, who commanded his subjects in both invasions of Greece, as well as Mardonius and the rapist Satospes, whose mothers were Darius's sisters. Mardonius is one of the few people at this level of removal from the throne whose children are identified in our sources. His son, Artantes, gave gifts to the Greek cities who claimed to have buried his father with honors after Mardonius's body was lost on the battlefield. Another of Darius's sisters married Otanes, one of the seven co-conspirators against Bardia, in a union that produced several people we haven't met yet. Based on the ages of everyone involved, Otanes probably already had a daughter from a previous marriage, Phidimia, who first married Cambyses and then possibly Darius, she drops out of the picture after the coup, so it's hard to tell. One of Otony's sons from his later marriage was Smyrdomenes, who was a general of the army alongside Mardonius and Tritantychmes. His brother, Anaphes, commanded the Kissians a possibly Elamite tribal group from the mountains near Susa. However, 
Xerxes' most important cousin from the Audenese branch of the family, was actually the conspirator's daughter, Amestris. Amestris was Xerxes' one and only recorded queen. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. While Darius had five Persian wives and Cambyses had four, all of whom were supposedly married to Bardia, Xerxes was legally monogamous as far as we know. That doesn't preclude any non-Persian concubines, but none are mentioned by name. Much like Atossa, Amestris is better known for her reputation than any specific story from her life. Both of the primary stories about Amestris are from Herodotus. One we've already seen in detail, and the other is just mentioned in passing. Amestris ordered Mesistes' wife to be mutilated as punishment for Xerxes' affair with Artonte. Herodotus also mentions a story of how Amestris supposedly sacrificed 14 children to a god of the dead by burying them alive. The first story is dubious, and the second is almost certainly fiction. Child sacrifice was not a normal practice in any documented part of the Achaemenid Empire or any iteration of Iranian religion, Zoroastrian or otherwise. Zoroastrianism in particular disdained human sacrifice, 
and specifically forbade the direct contamination of the Earth with a corpse. Despite the fictitious nature of these stories, Amestris' reputation is still clear. Though like Atossa, it probably developed during her time as Queen Mother after Xerxes' death. Again, like Atossa, she was known for being able to exert political influence at court, presumably for the same reasons, but Amestris was also remembered in Greece for her cruelty. Herodotus' stories, as well as less direct comments from Theseus and Plutarch, described her as someone who took full advantage of her royal position to punish her rivals in the worst ways she could. Achaemenid history always has to toe a fine line between Orientalist depictions of Persian cruelty and the facts of our limited Greek evidence. Even if Amestris' evil deeds were exaggerated in the West, I think it's probably still best to regard her as a pretty brutal figure. She would hardly be the only member of a royal family in history to deal out cruel and unusual punishment to her enemies. And remember, we're in a time and place where crucifixion, or impaled on a stake, were the generous consequences for crossing the royalty. In later Greek literature, Xerxes was characterized as a sort of playboy figure, with a household full of wives and concubines constantly pursuing new lusts. A tempered version of the same licentious character appears in the biblical story of Esther, with his demands for Queen Vashti to appear naked and the subsequent bridal show. However, this does not bear out in the historical record. It's really just a mistress. Despite Xerxes' playboy mystique, the only specific dalliance recorded was with Artonte, Mesiste's daughter who supposedly sparked her father's rebellion. That is not to say that Xerxes had no concubines or illegitimate children, but almost none of them managed to work their way into the historical record. Herodotus mentions that Xerxes brought some of his bastard sons on campaign in Greece and ordered Artemisia to rush them back to Anatolia after Salome. Despite that, the only child of Xerxes whose name has survived without a reference to their mother is his daughter Ratashta, who is referenced just once in the Persepolis Treasury Archive. She quite possibly could be a daughter of Amestris, we just don't have a lot of context. We do know two of Amestris's daughters with some certainty, and like most of the court drama in the next couple of generations, this is all recorded by Theseus. One of Xerxes and Amestris's daughters was Rhodogune, just mentioned in passing. The other is Amatis, who I mentioned recently in episode 56 on domestic affairs. She was the one whose husband, Megabizus, had to appeal to Xerxes in order to halt her affairs. Their relationship did not improve after Xerxes' passing and Megabizus' reassignment as satrap of Assyria. Despite the rocky relationship, Amatis and Megabizus did have two sons, Artiphius and Zopyrus. 
The latter was named for Megabyzus's grandfather, the Elder Zopyrus, who served as satrap of Babylon after mutilating himself to help Darius retake the city in 521. Based on Theseus's reference to them as adults, a little more than a decade after Xerxes' death, he must have gotten to meet these grandchildren and see them start growing up. Then we have Xerxes' sons. As with his brothers, some would go on to play major roles in recorded history, and others would not. First up, we have a man Theseus called Achaemenides. In all likelihood, his Persian name was probably just Hakamanish, the same as everyone I usually call Achaemenes. But since his name primarily comes up in Theseus, I'll take this as an opportunity to have a mercifully distinct version. It's interesting to note that none of Xerxes' legitimate sons are known for playing any role in their father's lifetime. For the most part, they were all apparently too young to go to war in Greece, and few specific events are recorded in Xerxes' later reign. Achaemenides, at least, will go on to lead troops in another Egyptian revolt. Since he wasn't caught up in the disputes after Xerxes' death, we can probably assume that he had some official position outside of the core provinces in western Iran, but Theseus does not mention that explicitly. Next, we have Artarias, who eventually became the satrap of Babylon. His role might explain why Megabyzus had to move. Even though Megabyzus was a second-generation satrap of Babylonia, who had successfully put down revolts in Xerxes' absence, he was reassigned to the newly formed province of Assyria. That might just be because Xerxes wanted to give the reduced but still prestigious land of Babylonia to his own son. Since he was given this level of independence, we can assume that he was at least old enough to have been a toddler when Darius died. By the time Xerxes died, Artarius' own son, Menostanes, was probably already a child in Babylon, as he would ultimately be a young man when Megabyzus was elderly. If you can't tell, we're building up to some more complicated political events involving the satraps of Babylon and Assyria. We don't know how old any of Xerxes' sons were, but it seems very likely that Artarius and Achaemenides were on the younger end of the spectrum. The next three were the three eldest sons in order from youngest to oldest. Xerxes' third son was the first man in our story to be called Artaxerxes, a name that merits more examination. Through a quirk of translation, the name we normally use sounds a lot like his father's name with Arda tacked on at the beginning. Strictly speaking, that wouldn't be strange from what little we do know about Persian naming conventions. Arda is the same word as the Zoroastrian concept of Asha, the divine truth or order, that appears as a prefix in many Achaemenid names. But that's not what happened. In Old Persian, Xerxes was called 
Kashaya Arsa. Kashaya, you might recognize from Kashayathea, meaning king. Arsa just means men or heroes, depending on context. Xerxes was literally ruling over heroes. Artaxerxes' name was actually completely different. Arda Khashasa, meaning one whose reign is through Arta. The Khush sound that led the Greeks to transliterate it with the letter Xi is the same, but the actual words in Old Persian are just similar. Regardless, I'll stick with Artaxerxes for now. We know something between little and nothing about Artaxerxes' early life. He would have been at least a young child in his grandfather's court, if not a teenager already engaged in military training. Presumably, he held some satrapy or other high-ranking position once he reached adulthood, but he was too young or too inexperienced to command troops in Greece, and even Theseus doesn't mention where he was stationed while his father still lived. Justin's Epitome of Pompeius Trogus tells us that Artaxerxes was still a young man when his father died, but in the context of Persian tradition and the relative experience of his younger brothers, he might have been in his early 30s. Not old by any means, but not necessarily what we consider a young man in casual conversation. Greek authors would later call him Artaxerxes Macrocare, or Artaxerxes the Long-Handed. Evidently, this wasn't a nickname made up by a Greek historian, because different sources have different explanations for it. In the 2nd century CE, Julius Pollux said it was because of his political influence. His long hand could reach far into Greece. But a few decades later, Plutarch wrote that it was just a description of a physical defect. One of Artaxerxes' hands was longer than the other. Several known Persian nicknames for historical figures were based on their physical descriptions. So this is entirely plausible. If the physical explanation is true, then he had either a birth or childhood injury to his left arm. Beyond that, though, Artaxerxes' early life is just as mysterious as his father's adolescence under Darius. The same is true for his elder brothers. Next up is another Histospes, according to Plutarch, or Artabanus, according to Theseus. Different as they are, they are described the same. Xerxes' second son and satrap of Bactria at the time of his death. Presumably, he was promoted to that eternally important position after his uncle Mecistes rebelled. I really have no way to guess which name is right. Neither author is overwhelmingly reliable with their names for Achaemenid princes, and both names have other ties to Bactria through Herodotus's stories of different men. Since I have to pick, I'll go with Histospes. Don't worry, he won't be around long enough to get too confused. Finally, we have Xerxes' eldest son and the heir apparent, Darius. 
obviously named for his grandfather. This Darius was not Xerxes' firstborn, but he was Amestris' first child and the first legitimate heir in this generation of princes of Persia. He might have been too young for Greece or too important. I'd personally lean toward too young, but it's always possible that Xerxes kept his eldest son away from such a large conflict to ensure the line of succession. It was clearly something on his mind if my interpretation of Herodotus's tale of the illegitimate sons is correct. And that just about fills up Xerxes' family tree. All this talk about who did what in relation to Xerxes' death probably feels like I've painted a target on his back and the crows are circling overhead. But it is not quite time to kill off Xerxes, son of Darius, just yet. In fact, we're actually going to jump back to the beginning of his reign to talk about one of my favorite parts of Achaemenid history. The time that Xerxes fought with demons. Until then, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. You can find more information about this show at historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll see things like an about page, the Achaemenid family tree, my bibliography, and the support page for this podcast. That support page has everything you need to financially support this project, like affiliate links, one-time payments, and most importantly, links to Patreon. At patreon.com slash historyofpersia, you can get access to ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and more with a monthly subscription. I also want to remind everyone to go check out the Oldest Stories podcast starting September 8th to hear the story of the Elamite civilization that preceded the Persians in western Iran. If you want to help this podcast grow and reach new listeners, the absolute best way to do that is to tell other people, go on social media and share this show. You can find me at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.